Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Richard Sanders. Richard Sanders is a researcher, writer, activist who has engaged full-time in the peace movement since 1984 when he escaped academia with an MA in cultural anthropology. His efforts to debunk Canada's peace mythology began when coordinating Ottawa's Peace Resource Center, producing a community anti-war radio program for almost 20 years and being a local organizer with the Alliance for Nonviolent Action. In late 1988, he founded the Coalition to Oppose the Arms Trade, its initial DisarmX campaign, which included a conference, public inquiry, and march and rally of several thousand, precipitated Ottawa's 20-year ban on arms bazaars. Richard Sanders, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Yes, thanks very much for having me on here. I suppose I should ask first, having just said this without explanation, uh, what is Canada's peace mythology? Well, Canadians really identify themselves as being uh, part of a, you know, a proud nation which has always promoted peace and justice and humanity and all these wonderful things. And uh, the government spreads this idea, and it's just part of our identity. A lot of people really, truly believe this. We, we talk about, uh, when I say we, I mean the, the mainstream media and the corporations and, and mainstream uh, non-governmental organizations uh, like to talk about Canadian values. And they believe that uh, Canadians are imbued with this. You know, part of it is because we compare ourselves to the United States. Canadians think of ourselves as very different from the United States and, and often see the United States as, you know, being a bit militaristic, engaged in wars. We we think about the civil rights movement, uh, slavery, and, and we always compare ourselves to the United States. And so Canadians think of ourselves wrongly as being some kind of a specially above and beyond and more uh, wonderful uh, examples of humanity than than our friendly neighbors to the south. <laughs> it's a little it's a little humorous because it's exactly the way the people in the United States think of themselves, and so to be yes, different. And it's a common thing around the world, of course. Is Canadians aren't special in this regard. Uh, many uh, nations, uh, the the members of many nations see themselves as being special and having this wonderful history, when in fact, uh, you know, so many different countries are based on uh, genocide and, and human rights violations and war and all sorts of uh, nasty things, racism, imperialism, uh, and Canada is, is part of that. We, you know, we're, our whole, the whole country is based on uh, land plunder and imperialism and and uh, genocide. Um, so the whole idea that Canada and Canadians are imbued with this wonderful uh, uh, natural tendency towards these, what are called Canadian values, uh, it's just pretty ridiculous. Well, um, and But many people, even in the peace movement, tend to believe this. Uh, you know, they don't swallow the whole myth uh, hook, line, and sinker like uh, many uh, mainstream people do, but even progressive 
people have been have succumbed to this mythology. Yes. Um, there's so many examples of it, and for decades I've been trying to raise awareness about uh, about many different issues about Canadian militarism and involvement in supporting uh, U.S. wars and coups and invasions and uh, regime changes around the world, and it's. It's difficult. I think one of the biggest obstacles I've faced over the decades is is this is this mythology that Canadians are are somehow uh, peace loving uh, people that are part of this wonderful culture, and and they forget that, uh, like as I said, it's based on land plunder, imperialism, genocide, and uh, many examples of wars, and so constant struggle as you know well you are absolutely right that i've met canadian peace activists who believe believe canada is a force for peace and it is a ridiculously low bar for a nation to celebrate you know that it kills fewer people than the pentagon uh and it it ignores the history that is ongoing in the environmental destruction and so forth but isn't there sort of a, a a new uh, version of this that focuses on on UN peacekeeping missions and the responsibility to protect excuse for so-called humanitarian wars, and that somehow somehow Canadian militarism is is aimed at peace. Right. Yeah. For a long time, uh, Canadians uh, prided themselves on this uh, this whole idea of peacekeeping. You know, our Prime Minister Lester Pearson, who. We could talk about at length if you like. He was, you know, the supposed founder of of United Nations peacekeeping, and uh, actually, the guy was a real incredible Cold Warrior. He was one of the he was like the father of uh, Canadian Cold War ideology. He was he supported the Vietnam War in the uh, in the fifties, and you know, the invasion of uh, the. Dominican Republic, and uh, he was anything but a wonderful, peace-loving guy. The guy brought, Lester Pearson brought nuclear weapons into Canada, America. He allowed the basing of nuclear weapons in Canada on our Bomark missiles. Uh, This he did immediately after being elected, and he was elected with the help of uh, another big cold warrior who many progressives see uh, in only pure light, and that was John F. Kennedy. And uh, our prime minister before Pearson, I don't want to dwell too much on ancient history, this is going back to the early 60s, but our our prime minister back then was John Diefenbaker, and he refused to allow the U.S. to base nuclear weapons in Canada. Well, Pearson was willing to bring in the U.S. Uh, mil- uh, nukes into Canada, and uh, with the help of the CIA and the State Department and the U.S. ambassador and the Canadian uh, military and the uh, mainstream media, there was basically a coup. And uh, our governor general uh, called a vote of non-confidence in Parliament, and uh, Ethan Baker was gone. He was out. He was out of there, and mm-hmm. Pearson was elected and, and as I say and basically a constitutional coup and as soon as he got in he brought nuclear weapons into Canada so uh, that's a little uh, part of our history that and about Pearson this wonderful founder of and uh, recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize 
prize for his creation of uh, peacekeeping yeah. that many Canadians and others around the world don't know anything about. Uh, Richard Sanders, you're going to be speaking at the No War 2020 uh, World Beyond Wars conference in Ottawa in May, which will be part of an, uh, a week-long effort to shut down uh, CANSEC, the latest giant weapons show in Ottawa. Uh, what should people doing this work today know about successes and failures uh, in the past of opposing these giant weapons shows in this in this peace-promoting country? Yeah, this is this is a a big issue. The, the Canadian role in the international arms trade is is very important part of one of the one of the many ways that Canada contributes to the uh, perpetual war machine. Um, we sell a, several billion dollars worth of military equipment to the United States every year. And the United States makes up about, I don't know, 70% or so of our total military exports. Uh, most of what we produce is exported. Most of it goes to the United States, billions worth every year. And this has been going on for decades. So we help supply, you know, military equipment to the U.S. Oh, you know, going back to the Vietnam War and ever since the Iraq War, and which Canadians, mainstream Canadians, have been duped into believing that Canada wasn't involved in the uh, 2003 Iraq War, but we were more deeply involved than most of the countries that admitted that they were. The Canadian government has a, a way of sort of tricking people. Uh, they tell them that they're not involved, and then the media picks it up and says it over and over again, and then people end up believing it, even though the truth is so blatantly obvious that we we were involved and I got distracted from the arms trade thing. So yeah, so back in 19 uh late 88 um I started the coalition to oppose the arms trade. The idea was to counter what was then called Armex, which was Canada's largest military trade show. It had been held a few times before. It was held at that time every 2 years. It was first held on military bases and it was run by the Canadian government. Uh, then they privatized it, sold it to uh, uh, a company, Baxter Publishing, and they, they organized it in, in Ottawa in 1987. And I, back then I was doing a radio show, community radio show, uh, and uh, I actually went into the arms show and interviewed the organizer, Wolfgang Schmidt, and uh, toured around the exhibits and saw for myself uh, what these what a military trade show looks like on the inside. I went around, picked up all the stuff off the tables. Anyway, uh, so I decided that this was the biggest, ugliest, most blatant, symbolic manifestation of Canadian militarism that I could possibly uh, witness in my city. There was no other such example. And I think this is a good strategy for peace activists not only on the arms trade, but are not even just peace activists, any kind of activists. You pick the, the most blatant symbol of what you're opposed to, and you find it a concrete example of it uh, right in your city or town or whatever, and uh, you focus your attention on that. So that's what I did. I focused on the Armex military trade show, and uh, this was really the first time that uh, that anyone had opposed uh, in any kind of uh, organized way, military uh, trade exhibi exhibitions in Canada.
so that was another very useful thing or a very um, significant factor is that it it was in kind of a new thing. People didn't know about Canadian uh, involvement in the international arms trade, and so when, because this big example of it was coming to Ottawa, it was a great target. So it's important to pick a good target, and Armex was a good target uh, with hundreds of companies from across Canada um, exhibiting their wares to uh, participants that came from all you know all of the embassies. Well except for the Soviet bloc, uh, were invited, and uh, and they sent their uh, you know procurement officers. Uh, this is still the case with the latest, uh, with what's now called CANSEC. It's not organized by the same people, but it fulfills the same function. It promotes Canadian military exports and sales to the Canadian military as well. Um, so... Uh, what happened was that uh, at our first meeting, um, there was a city councillor that, that came. We had a really good turnout, like about 40 people, I think, as I recall, from diff- lots of different organizations. And just uh, uh, towards the end of the meeting, this guy got up and he walked out and he said, he hadn't said a word during the meeting, he said, well, I just want to let you know that I'm, my name is George Brown and I'm a city councillor. He was a young guy in his 20s. And uh, I'm going to be doing everything I can to try to, make sure that this thing gets stopped, that the city try, try to somehow do deal with this. So they did uh, with his great work, and we supported him with petitions and all sorts of uh, support for him. Um, he, uh, he got a resolution passed in the city council to, uh, to ban all future arms trade shows, not just Armex, but any other kind of military trade exhibition, uh, from city property, so from municipal property, and that's where Armex was held. It was held at the the exhibition grounds in the in the large, uh, root, uh, you know, facilities there, and so it was banned. And it, that ban stayed in effect for twenty years, so it couldn't be held on city property. They had to move it, and they moved it to uh, provincial government property, and now it's held on uh, private property. But the ban was was you know in effect. From, at least it was banned from municipal property for 20 years, which was... Richard. Uh, and, but, but, you know, there's different ways of measuring success of a, of a campaign. And one of the... Well, I think the most important measure of success is how much uh, awareness you can raise. You know, public awareness is very important. That, you know, I mean, considering what I was saying about Canadian peace mythology, most people in Canada still have no idea that Canada is involved in the arms trade. I mean, they have a little bit of knowledge in the last few years because of one particular uh, sale, uh, you know, or um, set of sales, you could say, of uh, armored personnel carriers, to uh, which are basically uh, tanks, weaponized uh, armored personnel carriers. We sell to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is, is Canada's second largest uh, recipient of military equipment. The United States, as I said, is the first. But I think it's more important to target on target the U.S. But anyway, so uh, our campaign against Armex was really successful in terms of hundreds and hundreds of newspaper articles across the country that were focused on uh, Canada's role in the arms trade. So it's that was it was success in that way. 
You, you've, you've said in the past, Richard Sanders, that the success was not so much about banning the shows from municipal property as about lifting the ban on media coverage that had previously yeah, right. protected the public from knowing anything. Uh, was there literally a ban, or do you mean that no. the, the corporate media simply, as, it, as is its tendency, avoided covering this? Yeah, well, you know, you don't have to tell people tell the corporate media what to do. They know themselves how to protect their kind, you know, the 1% or whatever. Um, you don't need to literally ban them from uh, reporting the news. They, they figure it out themselves quite well, um, since they are owned and operated by the, you know, huge corporations. Uh, yeah, so there wasn't literally a ban, but they basically didn't tell people about Canada's military exports. And so when we broke through that barrier, the great wall that separates people from information, which is the media, people think of the media as a way of that the public gets their information, you know? But really, it's a wall that stops people from getting information. The mainstream corporate media is. Right. Um, so... Uh, yeah, it was successful in so, that way. So, I mean, so, not 100% successful, but I mean, we made a bit of a breakthrough there. And um, So why didn't it last after 20 years, the, the, the ban on discussing Canadian militarism and weapons sales uh, in the Canadian media is more or less back, and the ban on having giant arms shows in Ottawa is gone? Yeah. Uh, what went well, wrong? Well, yeah, there were technical things about the, why the ban changed the city um, the city structure the municipal structure changed we had all these different uh, cities uh, in the Ottawa region and they all came together into the re uh, regional municipality of Ottawa Carlton it was called and then it became the city of Ottawa one big city amalgamating these smaller s cities that existed and so when that change happened some of the some of the bylaws uh, went by the wayside, and the uh, the ban against arms trade shows. Uh, that's what happened to it. it. It disappeared because the city of Ottawa, which passed the the bylaw, was only one par one city within the the group of cities that came together. So the bylaw didn't 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 uh, didn't survive the amalgamation of the cities. Can it be recreated? Not with the city council we have now. I, there's, I, there's just no way that it, that it could get through. This is, uh, I mean, we do have some progressive councillors, but uh, no, we, they would never. But even so, it wouldn't matter, because now they just hold it that They have a huge facility that's privately owned. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I, Initially, when it was first held, it was held on city property, and so it was a, a blow to them that it got kicked out, that the city kicked them out. Um, but now they can survive quite well without having the city facilities. They've got the private facilities now built up that are so quite what, nice for them. So we can create a counter-peace bazaar uh, against the weapons bazaar. We can communicate to people our, our opposition and try to bring some, some shame to the weapons dealers. Uh, yeah. What else can we do? Uh, well, 
Um, there's so many different things to do. I mean, everything that we do, uh, who knows? Like, it, this is a, a question that we're always asking ourselves, right? Like, what do you do? You're up against this this Goliath. How do you deal with it? It's so massive. It's so huge. It seems futile. But um, really, there's uh, everything that we do helps, and we don't often know uh, the effect that we're having. Like, I'll often, uh, you know, I'll meet somebody and they'll say, oh, you know, uh, you influenced me because you did this such and such, and it, it, it led me to do this, and then that affected that. You know, sort of what we do, we don't know how it's impacting other people. So it, it often does have an impact that we have no idea about. Um, but, yeah, so we have, we have to do everything we can, really, uh, and there's no single magic bullet to solve this problem. We just, uh, you know, we do music, we do uh, movies, uh, documentaries, uh, radio shows, uh, cable TV, you know, uh, our newsletters, our protests, our civil disobedience, um, you know, getting information to, uh, to, to students, to teachers, to, to, you know, all different communities, uh, everything that we do to to spread the word out, yeah, uh, and do you know what you could broadly call public education, and uh, I, I'm not a, I don't know about lobbying the government so much. I don't know until the public is is more aware. Uh, you're not likely going to get. Uh, it depends whether you have good politicians that you can work through. Right back in the late '80s, there were some progressives really good progressive people within the, our third party, the New Democratic Party. Um, but that party has become more and more more and more trying to be like the main two parties, uh, the liberals and conservatives. Right. In, in the United States, you know, when people find out about the, the arms trade, uh, the weapons deals, they, they, they associate U.S. weapons companies with U.S. wars and U.S. flags and U.S. war songs and U.S. patriotism. And it, it's helpful to point out to them that the U.S. sells, you know, weapons to almost every country on Earth, the vast majority of the most oppressive governments on Earth, that there are U.S. weapons on both sides of most wars. So even if you had some morality that said you must support some war. You can't support both sides of it. It seems with, with Canadian weapons, uh, it, they're not even so much about Canadian wars as U.S. wars and Saudi wars. And for all I know, both sides of some wars have Canadian weapons too. Is this is this the right approach to persuading people that it's not Canadian patriotism at work here? Uh, um, well, okay, uh, there's a few things to say about that. Canadian, what the Canadian military companies largely do is build components, very high-tech uh, component parts that are then sold to the U.S. and then assembled into major weapon systems. Think about uh, warplanes, uh, bombers, fighter planes. So every U.S. Uh, major weapon system, uh, ships, submarines, warplanes, uh, you know, complex pieces of machinery that have hundreds of companies contributing uh, equipment into. So those Canadian companies are producing, you know, electronics or radar or communication systems or weapon systems that go into those U.S. Um, uh, weapon systems. 
The other thing is, uh, when you talk about U.S. wars, a lot of these wars are uh, NATO wars. They're U.S.-led NATO wars. And Canada is a major player in NATO, always has been. And earlier on, you talked about the, uh, the concept of responsibility to protect, which is this U.N. doctrine that basically a lot of progressive people see it as a, as a good step forward because, you know, we're helping in these wars and uh, military uh, interventions were supposedly helping, you know, poor, innocent people to protect themselves from, uh, from oppressive governments. Problem is, when you do these regime changes, you can't trust the uh, the U.S. or Canada or NATO to decide who these uh, who should be the leaders of these countries. And often they just replace one repressive leader with another. With another, and this whole responsibility to protect basically what it does is it provides a a uh, pretext. It's sort of a it's a uh, systematized or institutionalized process for creating pretexts that can be used to convince or con the public into believing that the one war or another, whatever the particular war is that they're trying to promote at that moment, they need a trigger for it, they need an excuse for it. So it it helps to kind of convince the average person that it's indeed a good humanitarian thing, this humanitarian intervention, it help, will help people, and, it, and uh, but in fact right. it usually helps people about as much as residential schools where, <laughs> you know, 150,000 children were kidnapped from their parents and yeah. was part of a process of genocide. I mean, it, the schools were about as helpful uh, to those <laughs> kids and their families uh, and to uh, First Nations culture as the uh, these humanitarian interventions that are yeah. created by the uh, Responsibility to Protect Doctrine. So, Richard, we... I don't know, I think that one thing, that one way of, you know, one approach to dealing with the problem of uh, is that... Uh, you need to explain to people what these wars really are about. And usually it's about corporations making a lot of money, or it's about geopolitical uh, positioning in the world for military uh, bases or whatever. Um, but if, if because the, the, the wars are sold to the public using all sorts of lies, uh, because if the public was told the real reason for the war, they would never support it. And you need to have public support because the public provides the taxes and it provides the soldiers, you know, the, the people, taxpayers donate their children to these wars to get killed and to kill. And they also donate their money or they give their money, uh, they're taxed. So that's how these wars are fought. But they wouldn't be so inclined to do that if they knew the real reasons for the wars. So I think that's uh, something that the peace movement and the anti-war movement needs to keep in mind is to, and I think that we do that, but uh, but it's also important to know that the progressive progressive organizations, big mainstream uh, progressive NGOs, are often supporting the wars that they should be opposing. They're supporting these wars because they get they read the newspaper.
newspapers and they watch TV and they watch, listen to radio and they get conned by the uh, by the uh, the coverage and the the lies and so they and the progressives end up supporting these wars. Richard Sanders, yeah. I wish we could go on. We're long out of yeah. time. We will do everything we can to counter yeah. the misunderstanding, including through the No War 2020 conference in Ottawa, where you will be speaking in May. People can go to worldbeyondwar.org to learn more. Richard Sanders, thank you for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Well, thanks for thanks very much to you, too. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.